Earlier this year, IRA informer Freddie Scappatici died in England at the age of 77. In this episode from April, we take a look at the life and crimes of the double agent and his years spent unnoticed at the top of the Republican Army. During the Troubles, the IRA set up a unit to find informers within its organisation. Informally called the Nutting Squad, because suspected touts were executed by a shot to the head, it was led by Freddy Scappatici, the son of an Italian immigrant who grew up in the markets area of Belfast. The standard procedure is to strip them yeah. and debug them, yeah. right, just to see if they're, they're wired up or whatever, right? Yeah. And they usually put a boiler suit on them there and all that, right? Put them in a chair, face no the wall, right, and then go from there. He used kidnap torture and murder to flush out the rats in the Republican paramilitary organisation. But as we now know, Scapatici, one of the highest-ranking men in the IRA, was himself an informer in the pay of British intelligence. His handlers named him Steakknife. OK, where, where could we meet that is safe? You say somewhere. Are you in Derry or Belfast? Belfast. You're in Belfast. As the chief of the nutting squad, he's been linked to the murder of 20 fellow IRA members who he suspected of passing on information to the British. Among the victims were his neighbours, associates and even friends. Uh, One other piece of breaking news from Northern Ireland. The man uh, who was said to be the army's top agent within the provisional IRA uh, has died... Last week, it emerged that Scapatici had died in England, but he was already buried by the time the news broke. His actions are being investigated by Operation Canova, an inquiry set up in 2016, headed up by a retired British police officer. Its findings are due out later this year. The government have an obligation to put this right, and the government have an obligation to put right what happened in Northern Ireland. But how will his death impact the inquiry and the families of his victims who are still seeking justice? I'm Bernice Harrison, and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, who was Freddy Scapatici, the British spy in the heart of the IRA? Jerry Moriarty, you were covering the North for the Irish Times during some of the years that Freddy Scapatici was active. Who was he? Freddy Scapatici was a native of Belfast. He was from the markets area of the city, close to the city centre. He was involved from the early days of the Troubles with the IRA. In fact, he was interned in the early 1970s with the likes of Jerry Adams and other senior Republican figures. Uh, he was released, I think, about 1974. And thereafter, he remained in the IRA, rising through its ranks He eventually became head of what was known as the um, IRA's Internal Security Department, which was feared within the IRA and was known as the Nutting Squad. Uh, A sad name, but that that was because their role was to debrief uh, IRA people who had been on different operations, but more particularly to try and seek out and expose people they thought were IRA informants. And lots of people who were exposed ended up being uh, executed, as the IRA would have termed it, because they were informers. 
And that was Scapatici's central role. And they reckon he would have been involved in up to 20, perhaps more, more killings and some of these people who weren't inform- informants at all. Now, by the late 1970s, uh, to bed down for a long campaign and to reduce the risk of infiltration by informers, the IRA had a problem with informers. Active members of the IRA were grouped into small, uh, often four-person cells, uh, and they had little interaction with each other. But because Scapatici was in the internal security unit, as you say, looking to flush out spies across the Republican paramilitary organisation, he had full access to everyone. He knew everything that was going on. So did he supply intelligence to his British handlers that was worth anything? I think he would have supplied them with some great intelligence. Uh, He was run by a British army group called the um, Force Research Unit, which is sort of a a shadowy body and very involved with agents and uh, in, in informants. Uh, Gen- uh, the late General Sir John Wilsey, he was uh, the, the, uh, the British Army's commander-in-chief in Northern Ireland for a number of years. He described Scapatici or Steak Knife as the golden egg, as the jewel in the crown of British military intelligence. During a considerable period of the Troubles, uh, he said he saved hundreds and hundreds of lives due to his operations, due to the information that he supplied. But of course, there's also the question that he was also responsible for several deaths as well while he was doing that work. But no, he it was a very, very senior figure and probably so far the, mo- the most senior IRA member who, was, who has been identified as an agent. And you talked about brutal deaths there. Could you just tell us about uh, Joe Fenton? He was a suspected informer and... Uh, I think what happened to him is a good, it's horrifying, it's brutal, but it's a good example of how Scapatici worked. Um, Joseph Fenton, he was, um, he was killed by the IRA in February 1989. Uh, they accused him of being a RUC special branch informer. But it was claimed that, uh, that Scapatici had actually interrogated him and was involved in exposing him as an informer. But it was also claimed that he told his handlers that the IRA were planning to kill him, to kill Joe uh, Joe Fenton. But it appeared that nothing was done to prevent that killing. You know, it raises the moral question, could or should something have been done to save Joe Fenton? There's a couple of other other aspects to that case, which is sort of even murkier. You know, it exposes how the sort of the pitiless nature of the whole dirty war because it had subsequently emerged that uh, Joe Fenton himself, in order to protect himself previously, when he came under suspicion, uh, he identified a West Belfast couple, uh, Jared and Catherine Mahan, as working for British intelligence. Now, if, the, if that was the case, there would have been very, very low-level uh, informants. But they were shot dead by the IRA in September 1985. But it just sort of gives an example of the nature of that whole murky world. There was a, a, another case uh, of an IRA member called Eamon Collins. I interviewed him years and years ago. He, I, he wrote what I think is one of the most powerful books of the Troubles called Killing Rage. And he, for a period, was on the so-called nutting squad, operating sort of in the Dundalk border area with Scapatici. In the book, I always remember the very uh, disturbing story he told about one of the people they were interrogating 
And while there, uh, Eamon Collins asked Scapatici, you know, were victims always told of their in- impending fate that, that they were going to be killed if, if they had been uh, exposed? And Scapatici was with another man there called John Joe McGee, who was actually his senior at the time. This is before he took over the internal security unit. And uh, Collins wrote about Scapatici turning to John Joe McGee. And he started joking about one informer who had confessed about being offered an amnesty. And Scapatici told the man that he would take him home, reassuring him that he had nothing to worry about. Uh, and Scapatici also told him to keep his blindfold on for security reasons as they walked from the car. This is Collins writing. And Scap said, it was funny, Scap said, watching the bastard stumbling and falling, asking me as he felt his way along the railings and walls. Is this my house now? And I'd say, no, not yet. Walk on some more. And then you shot the effer in the back of the head, said John Joe McGee, and both of them burst out laughing. I think that story, it really sort of encapsulates the pitiless nature of what they were involved in. It's harrowing. And what blew Scapatici's cover? When did his IRA colleagues begin to suspect him? I think in the early 1990s, uh, that's when the suspicions started. He's a menacing figure. He, he had great braggadocio. He could, uh, he could bully people and he was sort of super confident. But he's a curious figure because in, in, in 1993, some people will remember, it was a very good investigative program on I, ITV called The Cook Report. And um, so Scapatici somehow was inveigled or even volunteered to speak to the program anonymously, but he was sec- secretly recorded on the program. And he told them that uh, he claimed that Jerry Adams was on the IRA Army Council on the program, which we know Jerry Adams has consistently denied. But he reserved most of his venom for some reason for Martin McGuinness. Uh, he described him as, as an evil man who one minute would be in church and the next would say stiff him, as in killing somebody. So when he appeared in that program in 1993, you know, he, he wasn't identified, but I suspect the IRA might have been becoming suspicious around that time. And, you know, in this murky world, it's far from clear what happened, but it's understood that he was stood down around that period, around 1994, 1995. And it took until 2003 for him to be unmasked as steak knife. Um, how did that come about? A journalist called, a Belfast journalist called Greg Harkin, uh, working with a, a, a man who goes under the pseudonym of Martin Ingram. And Ingram had the goods on Scapatici because he was, a, uh, Ingram was a member of the Force Research Unit. And they uh, wrote the story and they also wrote a book about steak knife. So when that story appeared, Scapatici, you know, initially denied it and tried to sort of brazen it out. He spoke to journalists with his solicitors, and I think he spoke to the IRA as well. But I think after a short period of time, he certainly, he saw sense and decided maybe he should quit the country. So he went into a witness protection program and went, we understand, to live in England, where he, he has been living ever since. So he was still in the witness protection program when he died. Is that why there was, there was no publicity immediately after his death? Like he was buried by the time anybody knew? Absolutely. It was, we learned from John Boucher. He's a former chief constable of uh, Bedford, Bedfordshire police. 
who is conducting a big investigation into the operations of of uh, of Scapatici. It's called Operation Canova, and he issued a statement saying that he that he had died in recent weeks, some some time before before Easter, and we understand is buried somewhere in England. Uh, according to Greg Harkin, there was an injunction out during his lifetime that nobody could issue any photographs that might identify him or give uh, uh, report any information that could um, indicate where his whereabouts. But according to Greg Harkin, who wrote the book with, with Martin Ingram, that he lived in uh, Manchester and that he actually um, was a great fan of Manchester City and that indeed he even was a trialist, um, a young trialist for the, for the team way back. I suppose one thing that I don't understand is that, you know, he was a a staunch IRA man in the 70s, markets area, Belfast, very Republican area. He was in prison for four years. So why did he turn? Why did he become an informer? As they say, it's it's a good question. And it's sort of, we're not quite sure. There's there's a number of stories. One of the stories is that um, he fell foul of another IRA member who, who, with who uh, that he had an affair with this man's wife, and that the this IRA man badly beat him up, and this sort of uh, soured him against the IRA. There's also the suggestion that he 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 had some particular disagreement with Martin McGuinness, and that he was very critical of members of the IRA leadership. That may have been influential as well. Of course, there's also the the factor that. You know, it could have been money. It's it's understood he was being paid about you know more than eighty thousand pounds per year by his handlers, but it's not absolutely certain. But it he he was he seems to have been a strange sort of figure, uh, not particularly loved by the pe- by the people he worked with in the IRA. So you know, perhaps that had some something to do with it as well. And of course, the other question is that you know being a tout during the troubles was considered the ultimate betrayal. Uh, why wasn't Scapatici murdered by the IRA? I, I suppose he was outed, you know, the, the peace process you know, the, was was well underway at that stage. It was sort of, it was what, um, six years after the second IRA ceasefire. So if he were shot, it would have caused a lot of political problems for Sinn Féin. Additionally, it was embarrassing for the IRA, but if if he had been shot, maybe it, it could have caused further problems for them. I think the IRA decided to go with the fiction that they accepted his denials that you know he, he insisted he wasn't steak knife and that he that he wasn't an informer, and they seemed to, for some reason, more or less accept that denial, even though I'm sure they knew he was steak knife. Now, last week there were celebrations marking the Belfast Agreement. You're in Belfast. Do you? get a sense that Scapatici's death was big news there or is he now mostly remembered by the families of those he murdered or tortured? In the general sort of trouble story he is a big figure. The fact that he was the most senior IRA member to be exposed as an agent. The fact that so many people died as a result of his activities and the fact that as the you know that British commander claimed hundreds of lives were saved also because of his actions. I think he will always sort of figure as more than a footnote in the stories of the conflict. And one of the reasons it's argued why the IRA did sort of quit the stage or did pre- were prepared to have the ceasefires was because they were so allegedly riddled with informers. The fact that Scapatici was such a senior figure sort of proved how important the whole issue of agents were in the whole story of the Troubles. He was in the Witness Protection Programme. You know, it's limited how much we can know, but do we know anything about his last few years? 
And uh, not a lot, but we know a little uh, because as part of Operation Canova, he was charged and convicted of possessing extreme uh, pornography, including images of bestiality. Now, he appeared in the Westminster Magistrates Court in 2018. Uh, Scapatici appeared briefly and he, you know, as part of the inquiry, he told police that he was not sexually interested in, in animals and preferred women with big breasts. This is what was said in court. And he told him he was not doing any real harm. And he said that he had suffered from depression. Interesting comment from the chief magistrate, Emma Arbuthnot. Now, she said to Scapatici, which I think anybody familiar with his secret life would have found hugely ironical. She said, you know, you have not been before the court for 50 years. And that's good character in my book. But she also said something which I think indicated sort of, you know, how his final days weren't terribly happy because she said, I can see you are not a well man at all. You have very serious health issues and that you live a lonely life. I think that is probably correct that his final days were lonely. Coming up, what now for the families of Scapatici's victims? There is an inquiry called Operation Canova into the role of the British state into Scapatici's activities. It's led by former Bedfordshire Chief Constable John Boucher and an interim on its findings is to be published uh, later this year. He said last week uh, that he is working through the implications of Scapatici's death and that the casework would be progressed in consultation with victims, bereaved families, among others. Kevin Winters is a human rights lawyer specialising in troubles-related cases. Kevin, you represent a number of families of people murdered by the Provisional IRA's Internal Security Unit, the ISU. That's the unit created by the IRA and ultimately headed by Freddy Scapatici to find and deal with informers. What outcome do the families want from Operation Canova? Well, specifically, we represent 12 families um, bereaved as a result of the activities of uh, para-ISU during the conflict. Some of those families um, were bereaved as a result of the activities uh, of Fred Scapatiche. Some of the killings are not necessarily directly linked to him, but maybe either indirectly linked to him, but certainly uh, linked to ISU. Now, um, I think it's important to look at the um, the journey that a lot of these families have been on in order to answer that question. They came from a very, very low expectation base. Um, I mean, they were the last people in terms of the uh, truth uh, justice recovery process. So when John Boucher's investigation started in 2016, there was a natural degree of suspicion that yet again, uh, here we had a senior English uh, officer with a team coming over uh, to the north of Ireland to try and resolve what couldn't be resolved or either deliberately or negligently so uh, investigated by the authorities here. But as time moved on, he's gained the confidence of a lot of these families. He has been very much hands-on with his team. And that was creating, I suppose, an increased expectation that at last something was going to be delivered in terms of justice and closure for the families. Um, uh, right up until this point, when, uh, as we've heard over the last few days, that uh, the main protagonist, the central apex in all of this, Fred Scapatitia, had in fact died last Thursday. 
So in terms of specifically what they wanted, having been on that journey and come to this point and had expectations raised, um, the issue is, well, well, where does this leave us and, and what's going to be delivered? Will Scapatici's death affect ongoing cases? There is uh, the High Court civil actions, which are ongoing. Um, there's over 35 of them. Uh, actions against the state and Fred Scapatici named as well as a defendant. In my view, those cases, uh, and in fact, John Boucher has confirmed this with me just very recently, uh, are not likely to be really seriously affected as a result of the death of Fred's Capitatia. The cases stand on their own on the basis of the evidence and the material uh, to date. We've we've read in recent weeks, months prior to the death of Fred's Capitatia of the imminent production of a report by John Boucher and his Canova team. Um, I don't think the death is going to materially affect the content of that report. And that report, as I understand, was due to be published. And in fact, it's been confirmed again recently by John Boucher that it should be the mid or end of June of this year. Kevin, do the families you represent envisage any sort of closure when this report is eventually published? So at this stage, the families are on the threshold of accessing the sort of information uh, that will help give them closure. What that's going to be, I don't know. We will be engaged on part of that process. It's a, it's a, at a very, I suppose, it's a, at a tension point at this stage. The death of Fred's Capitatia ought not to impact on that engagement process one iota. And we fully expect a complete open and transparent imparting of the sort of information that will help give families um, a bit of closure. These cases, uh, as I, the numbers seem to change between 33 and 26. But whatever way you look at it, there's a substantial number of files that were referred by John Boucher and his team after years of painstaking investigation referred to the PPS for the purposes of decision-making on charges ranging from murder, conspiracy to murder, uh, torture allegations, false imprisonment, kidnapping, uh, perjury and so forth. And uh, we were at the cusp, as I understand it, of decisions being made after three years. The death of Fred's Capitatia is going to materially impact on that decision-making. Um, I mean, as, as a prelude to this point about Fred's Capitatia's demise, uh, I mean, there already were suspicions that the PPS may not have been minded to direct prosecutions uh, either in all or some of the cases, and that, in fact, um, decision-making on this front was heading, I suppose, if you like, for a soft landing, i.e. no prosecutions. And in my view, regrettably, that is really, really disappointing, uh, and that's putting it mildly. Um, had the decisions been made well before now, well before the death of Fred's Capitation, we could have had some sort of uh, clarity in this. But we're never going to know that now because, uh, as I said, the main uh, participant in all of this is now deceased. Uh, it would have been hugely significant and very important for the families to find uh, someone like Fred's Capitation in a dock. And of course, the massive takeaway point and the questions being raised is, had he been prosecuted, well, what was his defence going to be? Was he going to name handlers? Was he going to name others in the ISU unit? Was he going to put a case forward that others further up the food chain, the intelligence food chain, were actually involved in orchestrating and facilitating and overseeing this? Um, those are the sort of issues and questions that, which families really would have wanted to know. And indeed, the, the wider public would have wanted to know. But we're never going to know that now. When the families you represent heard of Scapatici's death last week, what was the reaction? It's a mixture of um, bewilderment, 
quiet resignation, you know, yet again, what do you expect? Here we go again. Uh, there's a little bit of cynicism about it all, especially around the uh, secrecy, if you like, of the burial. The timing of the announcement of Fred Scapatice's death coming as it does with the arrival of the US President Biden. Um, all that sort of stuff is in, in play in varying degrees uh, with the families and, and, and the feedback is, is very, very mixed in that front. So there is a frustration, there is a disgruntlement. Uh, and only that can be assuaged by the quick production of John Boucher's report, resolution of the outstanding civil cases. And there, there will be a real residual unhappiness uh, and dissatisfaction if all of the decisions in those 33 files or whatever number of files come back as no prosecution. And there'll be a real feeling that yet again there is uh, really, and it's an oft-used phrase, uh, it's a state cover-up of the truth. Um, and that, that will be really disappointing. Thanks very much, Kevin. That's it for today. For more Irish Times journalism, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by John Casey and Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back soon.